0: Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the LSE. And on behalf of both the Ralph Miliband Program and the Department of Government, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our speaker tonight, Professor Anne Phillips. Anne is the Graham Wallace Professor of Political Science at the LSE, where she was previously the Professor of Gender Theory. And she was, in fact, the first holder of that post and also the director of the Gender Institute, which has subsequently become the Gender Department. Anne is also a fellow of the British Academy. She's a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. And I feel I should mention a particularly wonderful and highly valued member of the Ralph Miliband Program Steering Committee itself, which she's played an important role in for many, many years. She's the author of, I think, some 18 books. Though so When there's so many books, you get sort of a bit confused about the exact number. And numerous articles dealing with questions of equality and difference, democracy and representation, and the relationship between feminism and liberalism and multiculturalism. And her books include, I won't list them all here, but some of the highlights include Which Equalities Matter? Multiculturalism Without Culture, The Politics of the Human, as well as perhaps one of her most influential works, the Politics of Presence. And it's testimony, I think, to the influence of this whole corpus of work and the recognition of that influence by her peers that in 2016 she was awarded the Isaiah Berlin Award for a lifetime contribution to the study of politics. Well, Anne's latest book, Unconditional Equality, Is due to come out with Princeton University Press in the next few months. And if you want to pre order it, there's a little link you can click on um, on the website. And it's on the arguments that she develops there that she's going to draw in her contribution tonight. So Anne is going to talk for about 45 minutes, and then we'll have a good chunk of similar amount of time for questions and discussion. Um, But before I ask her to speak, let me ask you to vicariously at least, Join me in warmly welcoming our speaker, Professor Anne Phillips. Anne, thank you very much for coming. Well, thank
1: you uh, very much, Robin. And I'm both very pleased and uh, and honoured to be giving this lecture. Um, in fact, I, I did I did intend to call the book "Unconditional Equality," but uh, the more I thought about it, I, the more I decided "Unconditional Equals" was was more what I wanted to say. So that's uh, that's what I've um, that's what I've ended up with. Okay, so I was going to, um, I was going to start my lecture with, uh, um, with a brief overview of the scale of contemporary uh, global inequality and the way this has uh, reversed uh, what through much of the 20th century had seemed a more encouraging trend. In fact, trend is, is perhaps uh, a misnomer because that uh, 20th century reduction in inequality uh, at least within, if not between countries, now looks more of an anomaly. Um, but there was a significant reduction in the uh, the wealth, um, at the wealth and income of the richest 1%, a significant increase for those in the lower 50%, um, what, uh, what some historians call the great levelling. So as I say, I was going to start with that, but uh, <laughs> I'm not, in fact, going to go into... Um, any detail about the current much less encouraging distribution of income and wealth, because there are, uh, there are many people at LSE who can do that far better than I. Um, because what I what I really wanted to start from is the, uh, the seeming acceptance of this. Um, of course, many people, including I imagine many listening to this lecture, find the current inequalities unacceptable. But if we're to judge by the political parties, citizens vote for, many more remain untroubled, despite uh, periodic flurries in the press when, you know, journalists review the latest statistics or muse over the crisis of capitalism, and despite many inspirational moments of activism around the world. There's little sustained evidence of revulsion against current inequalities. Uh, A recent uh, working paper from LSE's International uh, Inequalities Institute describes this as, the absence of a tawny moment. That is, despite the disturbing statistics, there's been no momentous shift in people thinking about inequality of the kind that occurred in the mid 20th century. And what I want to talk about tonight forms only one small part of any analysis of that. But I want want to draw attention to what I'm increasingly aware of, which is the fragility of even basic ideas of human equality and the role this may play in sustaining complacency about contemporary inequality. Now, we know that uh, people uh, disagree on matters of economic equality, uh, that some favour a radical redistribution of resources whilst others consider the current arrangements reasonably fair. But as, as regards the more basic idea of human equality, the idea that is you know that as human beings, we are all, in some sense, of equal worth. We're supposed to be in more general agreement. Indeed, it's it's sometimes offered as a a defining characteristic of modernity uh, that people nowadays recognise all humans as fundamentally equal, and this is said to uh, separate us from the pre-moderns who continued to think in terms of hierarchies determined by birth you know, not who or what you are, but what you can do. This is supposed to be a defining feature of our age. Well, it's a nice thought, uh, but it hardly seems a plausible depiction, either of dominant thinking today or of the earlier history of modernity. And just to say a bit first about just some of the history, I mean, I think any, any quick glance at the history of egalitarian ideas reveals one persistent and troubling feature, that nearly all the inspiring assertions about people being born free and equal, um, nearly all of them come with very large unspoken exclusions. So when 17th century European philosophers, for example, talked about the condition of men in the state of nature um, as being a, a condition of equality, and argued, argued that in that state, there would have been no, no natural hierarchy or divine right of kings to rule. Their assertions about our natural equality were not intended as kind of uh, suggesting that women should be regarded as on a par with, uh, with men um, or, that, uh, or that the poor should see themselves as equal to the rich. And when 18th century revolutionaries in America and France drew up their declarations about uh, all men being created equal or uh, all being born and remaining free and equal in rights. We know from the subsequent practice that when they said men, (laughs) they did indeed mean men, but also we know that they did not mean all men. Few at the time saw any discrepancy between such declarations of equality and the continuing subordination of women or between The supposed self evidence of all being created equal and the continuance, indeed, the intensification of slavery. They didn't see equality as incompatible with the colonization of millions of people around the world, Um, a process that in fact uh, speeded up just in the period when the world seemed to be talking more and more about equality. It, It did not seemingly occur to most people that later generations might take equal rights to mean actually what it said. So there's there's been an extraordinary level of discrepancy that is between arguments and declarations about humans as natural equals and the actual exclusion of way over half of humankind. Now, there's there's a story uh, we sometimes tell ourselves about this history as merely exposing the limitations of our ancestors um, those, you know, still benighted beings who, who could not yet imagine that all actually meant all, uh, who were too constrained, but you know, in the story, understandably constrained by the assumptions of their times, to be able to think the larger notions of equality that some of us adopt today. And you know, in this story, of course, we owe a we owe a debt to those ancestors. Uh, that they came up with the initial ideas in however limited and distorted a form. And we owe a further debt to the subsequent generations that seized hold of an initially exclusionary equality and pushed it towards fuller completion. And those recounting this history of egalitarian ideas sometimes talk of a logic of equality that drove it on to better conclusions. But this this is a rather benign developmental story. Uh, It's what the um, historian Theresa Bejam has described as, quote, the just so stories of inevitable unfolding in the historical progress of equality on which political theorists continue to rely. But it radically misreads what was going on in those early articulations of equality, which promised with one hand, but took away with the other. And in doing so, It also fails to take seriously enough the continuing ramifications of our understanding of equality, and it encourages us to think that we're much further advanced along the path than I believe to be the case. So, (laughs) so this is the rather depressing uh, starting point of my uh, lecture today. The the radical misreading that I that I refer to, I think, lies in the it lies in the failure to register just how many and how significant. Were the conditions and the qualifications written into early articulations of equality and the failure to see that the turn towards nature as the reason to treat others as equals, this being one of the characteristics of the so-called modern idea of equality, that this turn towards nature simultaneously created alibis for deeming all too many people as naturally unfitted for equal treatment. So the, the kind of the shared human nature that was offered up as the, the reason, the justification for thinking of us as basic equals was specified or, or sometimes you know, just more unconsciously was understood in ways that restricted it to only certain kinds of human being. The others were either uh, explicitly set outside the remit of equality or was simply not noticed as possible candidates. And I think simply not noticing was was quite a major feature of of this. So the the specification of what what made a a human being, right, uh, sometimes involved a particular notion of rationality. This was uh, frequently deployed to deny women claims to equality. Uh, It was sometimes a notion of the... um, the moral capacities that supposedly separated those deemed capable of being civilized from those considered impossible to educate. This was frequently deployed to justify slavery or colonization. And by the time of the 19th century, which is when binaries of gender and taxonomies of race become much more rigidly formalized, appeals to nature were very clearly working as much to establish gradations and exclusions as to assert our commonality. As the, the Jamaican novelist and theorist, Sylvia Winter has argued, male white Europeans were overrepresented, this is her term, uh, in the new human norm that was beginning to be articulated from the Spanish conquest of the Americas onwards. And this overrepresentation has continued to legitimate racist institutions and discourse well into our own time. Now, I've, I don't plan to offer uh, an account of that history tonight. Actually, I can, see I'm, I can see I'm breaking all the rules of lectures by repeatedly telling you what I'm not going to do rather than what I am going to do. Um, but I want to try to convince you of the, of the legacy of that history in which claims to equality are made to depend on meeting a particular prototype of the human. That the legacy of that continues today That is, that we still find ourselves thinking of equality, making equality conditional on being a particular kind of human being. And that we still find ourselves inserting conditions, qualifications and requirements. And and I want in the process to steer you away from um, a mode of thinking about equality that has perhaps been especially prevalent on the left a mode of thinking that relies on too sharp a distinction between formal and so-called real equality or between um, basic and a more substantial equality um, with the latter being something that provides people with the, uh, the necessary social and economic resources that make a formal equality real. Uh, I don't, um, Uh, I don't myself repudiate, I don't entirely repudiate that distinction, Um, but I do want to point up some difficulties with it, including that it may encourage us to believe that the first stage of equality, the basic equality stage, is already achieved. So to start with the first aspect, my claim that the legacy of historical gradations and exclusions continues today in public policy, in political discourse, and in political theory. I think that it continues in political discourse is is almost too obvious for me to need to say much more. I think despite the um, occasional delusions of political philosophers who sometimes talk as if the basic equality of all humans is now a widely accepted norm. Despite that, we live in a world where people continue to face Forms of racism, sexism, and homophobia uh, that veer between the insidiously persistent and the life-threateningly violent. These are all rejections of basic equality. And governments too get in on the act. And people are still being killed, persecuted, criminalized, evicted from their homes, stripped of their citizenship because they're the wrong kind of person. I think in the world today we face a combination. Of the the startling inequalities of income and wealth that i don 't plan to address tonight, and the continuing inequalities of gender caste and race that rank some humans as less important than others, sometimes even as less human, and on an, a not so uh, life threatening scale, I think we should add in uh, the further achievement based hierarchies of education and intelligence that have come increasingly to the fore in contemporary societies. I think one of, the, um, one of the successes of recent decades has been the expansion in all regions of the world, but, you know, but particularly in Europe, um, America, and uh, Southeast Asia, um, of access to higher education and the virtual elimination of the previous gender gap in this. But this has been accompanied by a trend towards increasing hierarchies in production, as the differentials between the high-skilled, well-paid and the low-skilled, poorly-paid widens. And those in the latter group often patch together a living from a mixture of insecure insecure short-term jobs, none of which offers very much in the way of uh, self-fulfillment. This is a very significant reversal of that earlier great levelling, And it's not just a reversal, I think, in a new twist to older stories. Differences in intelligence are projected onto differences in social class, generating categories of the smart and the stupid that attribute social inequalities to individuals' own lack of ability. And I'm thinking here of, um, uh, I mean, there's there's been an increasing uh, interest in um, recent years in the kind of the risks of meritocracy, which is a, Uh, which is a term that uh, Michael Young coined. um, Actually, I'm not sure if he completely coined it, but anyway, he used it very effectively in 1958 uh, to describe a a dystopian future in which human worth was was measured exclusively in terms of performance in intelligence tests. Well, you know, we don't live (laughs) in meritocracies, uh, either of the, the narrowly, Uh, IQ-based kind that uh, Michael Young feared, or of the time fantasised over by those who believe that we live in a world of social mobility. I think as the evidence on global inequality confirms, we live in societies where privilege is still passed down through the generations and rewards to the most favoured far exceeds what anyone could claim to merit. But we do live in the ideological shadow of meritocracy where there's there's just enough semblance of people advancing by virtue of their own abilities for them to buy into what i see as the myths of merit and desert and this adds you know yet another layer to those long standing hierarchies of class gender and race just to bring all that together the modern world i'm saying is in truth rather inhospitable to ideas of human equality and the notion that our modern era is characterised by a belief that all are in some important sense of equal worth. Looks like wishful thinking. Now, my point here is that even when people pay lip service to the idea of, um, of us all as basic equals, there's very often some spoken or unspoken qualification, just as in those earlier ideas of equality when the humanness and thereby the equality was perceived as conditional. Now, I don't, I don't, want, to, <laughs> I don't want to make uh, political theorists accountable for this, but it's a tendency that's not helped by what I think continues to be a tendency within political theory, which is the, the continued preoccupi- preoccupation with justifying, explaining, justifying why we should treat others as our equals or why we should all enjoy human rights by reference to some shared human characteristic. Now, writers today, of course, don't don't build um, explicitly gendered or racialized characteristics into their prototype human. And in that sense, we have indeed moved on. The contemporary justification for equality, for treating others as equals like yourself, is much more commonly um, that we share the innate dignity of being human Uh, or that we share the capacity for autonomy, or that we share the capacity for reason, or uh, this one is from John Rawls, that we all have the capacity for a sense of justice. Now, uh, these justifications clearly aren't as bad as saying, you know, that it's because you're a white man that you should be regarded as the equal of other white men. But they're still caught up in a logic of justification that looks to some human characteristics that will ground the equality. And I think whether we intend it or not, the characteristics then become a test. It's as though we get to be treated as equals because of this human property that we share. And this, you know, by implication means that, you know, if, if by some chance we don't exhibit this human property, we thereby relinquish our claim to equality. The test is clearly a much easier one for people to pass than in previous centuries. It's much much less overtly exclusionary, but the equality remains conditional. Now, you might say um, that, you know, when people talk about our dignity as human beings or our capacity for autonomy as the reason why we should all be treated as equals, they're referring to something so basic that no one could lose it, but still, you know, think about think about what's going on here in this kind of argument. I mean, either these are uh, empty terms which add nothing to the claim of equality. So, you know, why don't we just talk about equality instead? Why don't we just go straight to equality? Or they do have some meaning, in which case they are potential alibis for gradations and exclusions. And I think it's, it's worth... Um, It's worth thinking, it's worth considering in this context how willing uh, both people in general and governments in particular have been to withdraw what one might consider basic rights when people are seen to have fallen short of some presumed human standard. One very um, marked example is um, the, the fact that, I mean, in the UK, as in a number of jurisdictions, convicted prisoners lose their right to vote. In some states of the US, they will lose this right not just while in prison, but for the remainder of their lives. Now, it, it seems in such instances that a supposedly very basic expression of equality, the equal right to vote, regardless of wealth, gender, race, religion or sexuality, that this supposedly very basic expression of equality is in fact being made conditional. (laughs) And conditional in this case, not just on being human, but on being a good human, on being the right kind of human. That such restrictions are so widely accepted seems to me an important warning sign about the continuing conditionality of our ideas of equality. Or you might consider as a second illustration Uh, the recent revival of arguments for making the right to vote conditional on educational level. Uh, This is uh, something that um, uh, John Stuart Mill favoured in the 19th century as a protection against over-rapid democratisation. So he argued for uh, extra, extra votes for skilled artisans, for example, extra votes for university graduates, But related arguments now reappear in such works as Jason Brennan's Against Democracy, which which draws on evidence of um, voter irrationality uh, to suggest that democracies might benefit from the reintroduction of some voter qualification exam, uh, perhaps involving a, a test of basic social scientific knowledge or of the potential electors' understanding of what's at stake in the election. And well short of that, and more about attitudes than actual policy, consider how the critique of right-wing populisms, or the reactions of many of us who see ourselves as progressives to the outcome of the EU referendum, or the election that propelled Donald Trump to the White House, Think of the ways in which these expose strains of a new elitism that despairs of the citizens and kind of half wishes them less of a political voice. It's not just philosophers who get entangled in thinking that there must be some property humans possess that explains and justifies our treatment as equals. The idea that we might disqualify ourselves by our attitudes or behavior, I think, runs through a great deal of everyday thinking and current public policy. So, part of what I'm saying here is that in both the philosophical literature and in everyday talk, we may aspire to a belief in basic equality, but we too often undermine this by a logic of justification that looks to some natural or moralized characteristic. that that we represent as justifying or grounding the equality. Breaking with this means breaking with the notion that we're equal because of certain facts about ourselves. We're not, in my argument, equal because of some human property we can all be shown to, shown to, to share. It's actually very difficult to justify equality in this way, because it's difficult to come up with some characteristic that we all have and all have to the same degree. Uh, Jerry Cohen once wrote of this as the the wild goose chase for defining characteristics. But I think more importantly to my argument, equality is not something that should be justified in this way. Um, There's there's a a wonderful speech by um, Frederick Douglass, the American anti-slavery campaigner, Um, a famous speech he gave in 1852 on the topic of what to the slave is the 4th of July. So what that is, uh, is the significance to the enslaved of the anniversary of the American Declaration of Independence with its stunning, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, this was, a, <laughs> this was a wonderful declaration of our natural equality, yet it was one that at the time was taken to be entirely consistent with the continuation of slavery. Now, in, what's really striking, among other things, about the, about the speech is that in Douglass's powerful indictment of slavery, it's notable that he, he refuses to argue that slaves are also men or that as men, they are equally entitled to liberty, or that it's wrong, quote, to flay their flesh with the lash, to load their limbs with irons, to sell them at auctions, to sunder their families, to knock out their teeth, to burn their flesh, to starve them into obedience and submission to their masters. He refuses, that is, the work of justification, uh, though he provides in the process a very powerful denunciation of the practices of slavery. And he asserts, no, I will not. I have better employment for my time and strength. At a time like this, a scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. And, you know, though I wouldn't put myself on a par with Frederick Douglass, that that refusal to engage in justification of what should never require justification is is close to the form of argument i 'm making here we shouldn't have to demonstrate that men and women share certain common human properties in order to insist that we 're treated as equals we shouldn't have to demonstrate that black and brown people share common human characteristics with white with white people in order to insist that we 're treated as equals we shouldn't have to demonstrate that people living in social housing are just as human as those living in mansions i think in in such contexts the very act of offering a justification seems to acknowledge that there might be some doubt and seems then uh, to lend itself to gradations of equality. I mean, I should perhaps say, I mean, I don't don't mean by this that we should never engage in argument with people who reject basic equality or that when we do so, we should never have recourse to arguments that dramatise our similarities. I think persuading people to to change their attitudes to those they, they they currently see as alien or inferior is very often a matter of encouraging them to dwell more on similarities than the differences, to recognise, you know, that you know, we all have families that we care about, all have dreams and ambitions, all suffer pain. Um, the philosopher Richard Rorty uh, famously argued that the power of human rights derives not from a successful philosophical argument that establishes the essential defining features of humanity, but from the everyday stories we tell about others that enable us at last to see them. And I think it's true that for most of us, successful arguments involve eliciting sympathy as well as compelling rational assent. And we often do this by highlighting experiences and needs and qualities that we have in common. What I want to stress is that we should nonetheless resist the suggestion that it's because of these similarities that we are to be treated as equals, because that makes the equality conditional on those shared behaviors and qualities. And it thereby introduces a criterion that can exclude those not deemed to fit. And I think, I think you hear this uh, excuse for exclusion all the time in talk of how You know, particular people talk about how particular groups or particular individuals have forfeited their right to protection or their right to humane treatment or to, or just in more everyday life, to consideration. Um, We need to think of human equality not as justified by and therefore conditional on, and therefore possibly forfeited by, (laughs) the possession or the demonstration of what are claimed as central human characteristics, but as what I would describe as a commitment. And a claim. So, a claim we make on those who so far failed to recognize us as, e- as equals, and a commitment we make to ourselves and to others to treat all humans as equals. It's, it's I mean, in its essence, it's a political rather than a philosophical matter. Uh, this is not a matter of proof or justification or coming up with the irrefutable basis for equality. Equality is something we make happen by claiming it. Now, um, uh, we are, as I've uh, suggested, rather pessimistically, uh, a long way from actually making this happen. And this is where I want to turn to the uh, the second part of my lecture on the relationship between uh, so-called formal and real equality. Uh, There's a way of thinking about equality that I see as as particularly prevalent on the left. I mean, I shared it myself for many years and maybe I'm wrongly projecting the same belief onto others, but it's 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 a way of thinking that arises from a perfectly correct perception of the limits of a formal legal equality, but can then slide into a more dangerous complacency about basic equality being already achieved there is an important distinction to be made between formal rights and substantive equality. Um, Important distinctions, um, for example, between uh, assuring people that they're all regarded as equals before the law, and the reality uh, that those who can afford to hire top barristers have a much better chance of winning their cases uh, than those who don't even qualify for legal aid. Um, You know, highlighting the enormous gap between saying all citizens have the equal right to vote and participate in politics and the reality, which was a reality particularly well explored by Ralph Miliband in his book on the state and capitalist society, the reality (laughs) that the business and political elites who go to the same schools and universities, who socialise in the same settings, marry one another, Share the same formative experiences. That this this intermingling of elites, this crony capitalism, means that the wealthy carry much more influence on the major political decisions and on the distribution of government contracts uh, than the average citizen and voter. Now, th- these these are important contrasts. These, you know, um, and they're correct contrasts. As is the implication. One. Uh, might take from them, which is that we need substantive social and economic equality in order to deliver on the egalitarian promise. And this is fair enough, and I I absolutely share that conclusion. But I also think that this way of distinguishing formal from real equality or basic from substantive equality can encourage us to think about the formal as merely formal, as if it barely gets us anywhere, and can encourage us, moreover, to think that we've already sorted out that basic stage. Uh, It seems to me, this is introducing a kind of additional point here, it seems to me that that some of the difficulties people have with so-called identity politics uh, relate very much to this. Identity politics, that kind of impossibly large category taken to span almost any politics that references gender, race, sexuality, disability, religion, culture, nationality. (laughs) Identity politics is commonly represented by its critics as obsessed with surface harms. It's said to divert us from more fundamental issues of economic or class equality uh, to encourage an exaggerated preoccupation with the by implication, rather mild problems of racism, sexism or homophobia, and in the process uh, to undermine the possibilities for wider solidarity. I, I mean, in this particular formulation, the critique is particularly associated with figures on the political left. And then, you know, it continues uh, a long history that you know anyone involved in the early years of the women's liberation movement will readily recall of uh, subordinating other struggles to the big anti-capitalist one, but I think I think similar themes enter more generally into general uh, into public discourse as a kind of impatience with what's seen as a trivializing obsession with what are considered you know slightly questionable turns of phrase or off-color jokes. When there are far more pressing issues of state that 's very much the tone in which a lot of people talk about identity politics and I think in these dismissals, I think we see traces of that distinction between the formal and the real, the basic and the substantive, and very often as an assumption that we already pretty much have the basic equality. so what are these people obsessed with identity politics moaning about uh, i mean i think I think one uh, what to me is one good example of that is the Uh, the particular response to the politics of Black Lives Matter uh, that takes the form of insisting that all lives matter. Now, this is an odd response. I mean, of course, in many versions, it's not just odd, it's also deliberately aggressive. But it's it's odd because (laughs) the whole point of Black Lives Matter is precisely to say that Black Lives Matter should matter just as much as any other lives. When people attach themselves to the banner of all lives matter as if this is a riposte to, a corrective to black lives matter. They are, I take it, reacting against what they see as an inappropriate form of favoritism. Why, they ask, focus so much on black lives, don't all lives matter? But, you know, in asking this, they reveal a kind of extraordinary complacency about the current situation. They reveal that so far as they can see, there is no systematic difference in the way police forces relate to black and white citizens. Uh, so no need for any mobilization that addresses specifically black lives. They reveal that is a kind of a belief that, <laughs> that so- so-called basic equality is already achieved an assumption that we already have it. In, his, um, in a recent book on identity, um, Francis Fukuyama characterizes identity politics as the search for uh, public recognition of one's inner worth, or a, an almost kind of like therapeutic search for the restitution of dignity, or the salvage, the salving of, of a damaged self-esteem, and I take this as yet another illustration of the presumption that we already more or less have basic equality. I mean, if you've accepted the view that uh, that in the modern era or people are recognized as of basically equal equal worth, then you will assume that these identity agitations must be about something else. They can't be about getting equality. They must be a search for some kind of recognition for the salving salving of damaged self-esteem and so on. Um, But if, as seems to me the case, most of us still grade human beings on some scale, whether it's by their moral or intellectual or physical qualities, then I think what people misdescribe as identity politics is best understood precisely as a response to this, as a recognition of how far we are from even basic equality, not to mention from the kind of social, economic, and political equality that Ralph Miliband so long argued for. So just to sum up, um, what I'm saying here is, well, first that, there's an overly benign story we sometimes tell ourselves. And I, there's a little bit of self criticism here because, you know, there's certainly been times in my past when I've told myself this story. There's an overly benign story we sometimes tell ourselves about the progress of ideas of equality, a story in which we say, well, of course, of course the ideals start out in very limited form. Of course, people at the time. Could not easily imagine, including women as well as men, black and brown people as well as white. Of course, they couldn't imagine major redistribution of resources between rich and poor. But through the decades and the centuries, the story goes, the ideas gathered pace. Both the who and the what of equality was extended and deepened. And though we still have a lot of work to do as regards making the formal equality more substantive, at least we've arrived at the stage where all humans are recognized as, in some important sense, as of equal worth. That's a very benign developmental story, which it seems to me doesn't really capture what was going on, either in the history or in the present day. And against that story, I've tried to underscore the great significance of the many gradations and exclusions in earlier articulations of equality and the persistence of this form of argument in more contemporary justifications for equality, but still seek to ground it in claims about the qualities that humans share. I think so long as we try to pin down the, the reasons for equality in this way, we are setting a test. And in doing so, we're creating alibis that permit the exclusion of the wrong kind of humans. We should accept equality as what it is. It's a commitment we make to ourselves and to others. And it's a claim on those who deny us the status of equals. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you very much, um, Anne, for such a stimulating talk. We've um, got a lot of questions coming in. Just to explain to the audience what's going to happen, we're going to pick out some of them. We can't possibly ask all of them, and I'll read them out to, um, to Professor Phillips, and we'll, um, we'll go on from there. So the first question I've got here is from um, Celia Kirstenetsky, um, a professor at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, who asks, does your argument mean, in the end, that, we need to ju- that what we need to justify is inequality instead of equality? But is this not the starting point of social justice theories, such as those of Rawls?
1: okay. so that's uh, I mean, it is actually um, it becomes part of the kind of the uh, the argument that I want to make in in the book that this talk is kind of partly uh, derived from um, that. I I, I I associate myself with what 's been a kind of shift in some of the thinking about equality, which is precisely to start from inequality to start from the experience of oppression from experiences of domination from inequality, rather than to get too caught up in the definitions of what exactly uh, equality looks like and and how exactly it should be it should be framed so so your your point actually. Uh, fits well with some of the kind of the uh, the arguments that I kind of I subsequently um, develop further out of this because while I'm I'm both criticizing the idea that um, that we think of 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 equality as conditional on being a particular kind of human being because you can see the kind of the hostage to fortune in that and history tells us of the hostage to fortune in that but also that there's a, there's a kind of problem. In having such a kind of a clearly defined notion of what equality ought to look like that it introduces another kind of condition, I mean, I've thought about this myself, particularly in relation to some of the feminist debates about um, uh, how how easy it is to impose one's own conception of what equality between the sexes ought to look like. Um, I mean, my conception of equality between the sexes is is very much one in which, in a sense, there would be no significant division of labour between men and women in terms of the care work we do, the responsibilities we take on. Uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't have kind of a kind of different roles and responsibilities and attitudes and activities. Um but that's not something that uh, that everyone sees as necessary to thinking about equality. So, so I, th- I think I think I I I think you're right that there is a kind of that shifting from a focus on equality to a focus on challenging inequality um, is in fact um, an important shift. I don't myself see that as what John Rawls is doing, um, but that's uh, that's a kind of that's a that's a further set of arguments.
0: Thanks very much. We've got another question here from C.K. So, an alumnus from the LSE who asks, whoever is doing the justifying of equality for other groups is doing so from a position of power. So unless one could evade or dissolve these hierarchical power relations, West versus the rest, European versus non-European and so on, um, it seems too utopian to speak of unconditional equality. Is that right? After all, even the parties at the receiving end of these justifications are arguing for equality vis-a-vis the dominant groups.
1: Okay, um, so I think, yeah, that's very good. So, I mean, I think that what you pull out there is that, you know, the justifications for equality, um, very often kind of they're very often part of an argument in which equality is something which is being, um, in a sense, uh, given to people right, we are justifying why these people should be regarded as equal as well as other people right um, and part of what i I want to argue and it's it 's an argument that you that, that many people have made is that you know equality needs to be thought of much more as something that we claim that we make happen rather than something that kind of in a sense is 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 given <laughs> as a you know equality can't be given. It's in a sense it certainly can't be given by the powerful, though what the powerful do in uh, divesting themselves of some of their power can help. But equality in a sense has to be claimed and has to be acted and has to be made to happen. Um, but for me, that's very much linked to the unconditionality, right? I mean, I see the justifications as ones that always bring in, you, you know, you give reasons, you give justifications, you give grounds, you're setting conditions. I mean, you think you're doing it in a very positive way, but actually you're doing something which always has that negative side to it, which is that the kind of the justifications turn them on their head and they become conditions. So, so for me, the, the unconditionality is a way of getting, getting beyond that kind of power relationship and making equality something that, uh, that people are committing themselves to, that they're claiming, it becomes, a, a, it becomes part of the kind of the political movement and the political act.
0: Thanks. So we've got another question here from T. Roma, who asks, if we dispose of the idea of rights being the result of a certain characteristic, how do we decide which rights we grant to other non-human species If we cannot appeal to them sharing or not sharing the relevant characteristics with us, yes,
1: yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. That the um, one of the ways in which people have argued about um, extending rights to animals is by taking a kind of property basis for right, property in the sense of human, you know, particular characteristics that justify rights, and then saying, look, how many animals uh, also share. Some or many of those characteristics, therefore, they too should uh, be regarded as having the right not to be locked up in cages or the right not to be uh, not to be eaten and so on. Um, and it is true that kind of that my uh, my approach does actually, to some extent, it removes um, some of the kind of argumentative basis for that particular move. And so that the implication of what I'm saying is, is not that we therefore treat the animal world as um, you know to be you know just dealt with as human beings want to deal with it, um but that we don't we don't think of what whatever responsibilities we have to non human animals we don't think of it in terms of this kind of paradigm of what properties do they have, what characteristics do they have, are they sufficiently like human characteristics for us to want to um to feel obliged to extend to them certain rights. It's not that kind of argument that I want to make. And actually one of the, the, I think, quite um, compelling arguments that some of the people who work very much on questions of animal rights have made in relation to this is that um, there's something a bit strange about kind of extending to animals rights and protections to the extent that they... Appear like simulate human beings, right? I mean, why should human humanoid characteristics be the basis on which we decide what kinds of uh, responsibilities we have to non-human animals? It's a very anthropomorphic way of thinking about it. So, it, so it is true. I don't. I don't. I in what, I, what I'm arguing, the implication of what I'm arguing is that I lose. I lose the capacity to make that kind of argument for animal rights, which says. There are certain properties that justify being treated in a particular way. If animals have them, they should be treated in the same way too. I lose the basis for arguing that, but I'm, I'm actually happy to lose that basis. I think there are better ways of making the arguments about what our responsibilities to non-human animals are than of saying, look how like they are to human beings. I mean, I don't, I don't see that as the best way to make the argument.
0: Thanks. So the next question is from Susan Wolfe, who's a retired social historian. She asks Can you please address the gradations of equality, in inverted commas, with regard to the disabled and the treatment of the disabled on a daily basis, even in developed countries and cities like London?
1: Okay. um, So what I see as I mean, this this relates very much to the kind of the aspect of arguments about our um, notions of what justifies uh, regarding others as equals that links it very much to uh, particular kinds of capable of capabilities like. It, it, even in, even today many contemporary philosophers who as i say don't of course use overtly racialized or gendered characteristics to define what is the essential human that you know justifies how we should be treated but they will use cognitive capacities they will use um uh they will use forms of argument that exclude um people who might have um, uh, severe cognitive disabilities, for example, to take that example of one kind of uh, disability. And I want to argue against that, right? I mean, it's part of what I want to argue against is the way in which properties, whether they're physical properties or intellectual properties or moral properties, any kind of, even even what might seem like the most minimal level of these that ought to include pretty much every human being, they can work to create those gradations, and I think we see that very clearly in some of the ways in which uh, some of the ways in which disability is treated—a uh, kind of sense of a lesser human or a lesser capacity, or uh, you know, not, not really meeting the prototype of the human—and that that's among the among among the dangers that I that I want us to uh, to steer away from. So thank you for
0: that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, So the next question is from Elaine Laberge, um, who's a PhD candidate in Canada and writes, in my research, we're trying to demonstrate to Canadian universities why people whose lives are shaped by systemic poverty are an important demographic. After listening to you, I'm wondering if we should be trying to justify why we should be allowed entry to public funded universities. (laughs) I <laughs> been a question that we've been struggling with in our research.
1: Yes, yeah. Actually, it, uh, just just by the by, um, where though I really wanted this to be a, an in person um, lecture, I can see it is extraordinary how these webinars give create the possibility of communication uh, across across continents rather than uh, just people who are able to turn up to London for a lecture. So. Um, it's 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 a lot of it hinges or hangs on um this thing about demonstrating doesn't it uh i mean it's kind of um in the arguments that we're making i mean all the arguments that we're making for better policies for better ways of engaging with people better ways of doing things of course we're we're in the business of trying to demonstrate <laughs> um you know that you ought to do it this way rather than that way that you know that 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 you have excluded people that ought to be included that you have a policy which is discriminatory against uh, against other other people um it's a particular kind of demonstration that i just want to um challenge which is the kind of the demonstration that brings in this notion of uh showing that these people who've been excluded are just as human as those who are currently included, and I think that there's something about that form of argument which is really problematic. Um, you know, there there are other you know there are other ways of arguing uh, that that you know that need to be pursued rather than that because you can you can see, I mean, I suppose as in, as in the you know what I was trying to do with that quote from uh, Frederick Frederick Douglass, there are kind of certain kinds of ways of Trying to make the case about why uh, people who have been um, who've been ignored, who've been excluded, who've not who've been marginalised, ought to be taken more seriously. Um, it's not that you don't want that to happen, but there are ways of arguing that that seem almost to kind of concede the the, the inequality um, in the way in which they're doing it. So, I mean, I know. I mean, I'm sure that isn't at all what you're doing in your arguments but but the i mean that's 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 the only sense in which what I'm saying is um is at odds with what you're trying to do i think um just that one one needs to be careful that one isn't falling into a form of argument which is saying you know these people are just as good as just as human as uh share the same fundamental human characteristics as uh, therefore, um, which is is kind of such an argument from weakness, it seems to me, um, though it's perfectly understandable why uh, why 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 over the uh, over the decades and centuries it's so often been been employed.
0: Okay, so now we have a question from Milton Wong, an LSE third year in Singapore, um, who asks. I find the examples of convicted criminals very productive ground for thinking about what it means to be human and how we treat each other. I wonder how your conception of equality as a commitment, political choice more than anything else, which I see as a bare theory as it refuses justifications about the human, how that would react to people we think would typically lose rights for the crimes they commit what would your rights what would their rights look like and will they ever lose them in your way of thinking
1: yeah i mean it's so the the point about convicted criminals is uh is not that they don't lose any rights i mean if you <coughs> uh, if you imprison somebody because of their criminal acts you are depriving them of freedom right so you're you're treating them differently from other citizens uh you're depriving them of something that we think of as a kind of you know, freedom of movement, rights to, you know, yeah. So, so it's the implication of my of my argument is not is not that one can't differentiate uh, between someone who's committed a criminal act and someone who hasn't, who hasn't. But 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 that the idea that somehow through that criminal act one has forfeited one's right to be. Treated as an equal human being. Um, that, that's where the kind of problem is. I mean, you can see exactly the, there's a, the, the other obvious parallel is uh, when um, the sort of astonishing number of, of, of people who, who argued, who justified torture um, in contexts where you had people who, who were suspected <laughs> of uh, terrorist acts or suspected of having knowledge of future terrorist acts and it's kind of like it, it really is like saying this is a bad human being and because this is a bad human being therefore all the things that we have convinced ourselves that we believe in about kind of basic rights just Go out of the window because this is a bad human being, and yet of course the <laughs> you know those human rights are precisely most needed uh, when you 're confronted with bad human beings, it seems to me, or when you 're confronted with people who um, who aren't you know sort of your best buddies or i mean why, why do why do we need these notions of human rights we need them for those difficult situations uh, when um, actually, we don't want to treat people uh, as equals, but the human rights, you know, keep us on track in recognising recognizing this. Uh, can I also kind of pick up on something that's um, uh, that, that uh, one part of your question, which is about the idea of um, what my argument is, is kind of representing uh, equality really just as a choice. Um, so it's one of the... When I've made this uh, argument in in other contexts, one of the things that uh, that that people have um, have said is that you're you're reducing equality to just a kind of um, decisionism, right? As if it's just so you just decide <laughs> uh, that it's a good thing to treat people as equals. You've got no uh, you've got no justifications for it, you're refusing to provide grounds for it, you're rejecting kind of, you know, as problematic all of the kind of standard ways in which people have come up with a justification for this, you're turning it into just, you know, your own decision. What I uh, really object to in in that particular way of formulating what I'm arguing is is the way it it, it seems to suggest that it's just a personal choice, you know, like like I might, I might choose ice cream or I might choose equality. Um, whereas of course, equality is something that comes to us with a very long, um, out of a very long history. Uh, it comes to us out of a very long politics. Uh, it's, it's not something which is just something that individuals dream up or, or, uh, you know, is an individual preference or a choice. It's got a real history behind it. So um just your use of the term choice just just reminded me of that particular kind of um, argument that i I've, I've sometimes uh, heard against what I'm saying and and why I, why I think it's um, it, it's choice in the sense that it's political. Uh, but I don't think it's choice in the sense of being something that is just an individualized choice because it's 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 embedded In what is a real history that has produced egalitarian ideals and promises
0: and practices? Um. Okay, thanks very much. So uh, now there's a question from David Jenkins who asks: Hello, David. (laughs) Who asks: What happens in situations where people are so downtrodden that they do not, as a whole, make claims to equality? One might think of those claiming a right to bread from the noble families of southern Italy rioting for that for that uh, bread, mm. but stopping short of a demand for equality, one advantage of some feature we could point to would be that it stands over and above the need for something to be claimed mm-hmm.
1: yeah uh, i mean when i when I initially started um, thinking about this and thinking about what I wanted to say against the idea that. Equality is something we justify by reference to human properties uh, i I've, I framed it very much in terms of a claim, and I was thinking very much about the kind of the importance of bringing back into thinking about equality you know the egalitarian movements in which people are indeed making claims but of course you 're quite right and it's something that uh, um, you know the, you know, I I came to realize as a kind of weakness of simply talking about claims is that uh, y- you can be in a situation. Many many of many of us actually will at various stages of our lives have been in a situation where we didn't even think we had the right to make a claim. Right? So, so of course, just saying <coughs> claim is not good enough. And I I don't know if it solves it, but I for me I've kind of I get round it by saying claim and commitment. There are kind of contexts in which. Um, there are contexts in which what's going on is that people claim their equality and that's very powerful. Um, But there are also contexts in which equality is, is, is equally political, but it's there as a commitment that we are making to others um, and indeed to ourselves, um, which I hope provides, you know, enough of a kind of language in which to cover all of those different situations so that it's not, it, equality doesn't become something that is only available when you're involved in some kind of political struggle in which you, you know, in a sense, you've already, in a sense, you, you're you already sufficiently equal in your sense of yourself that you feel um, legitimate in claiming the equality. And you're right that that, that, that would be, If that were the requirement, then that would be another kind of conditionality that would also be problematic. So so I hope that commitment and claim together um, provide a way of addressing that concern.
0: Great. So here's a question from James Chiri yankendath from the Institute of Commonwealth Studies. Mm -hmm. He writes, do we need the idea of unconditional equality, not because it can can ever be realised in any absolute sense, but because the aspiration is essential to be, better realise in any society, to realise ourselves in any society. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. So, um, well, I think um, I think the sense in which it, it's very difficult to realise is that we all of us are endlessly battling against the ways in which we do make gradations between, uh, between people, you know, whether it's on a... Um, I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which I think all of us, I mean, it's not, not just the people that we criticize, but ourselves, we, we introduce all kinds of gradations. It's, very, it's, it's a very demanding notion to really think a total kind of unconditional equality in which, you know, you just really do see all humans, regardless of the way they are, the way they behave, um, regardless that they are of equal importance and significance to you. Um, The other aspect, of course, is that when we talk about realizing equality, very often we're then um, moving more into the kind of thinking about what are the material conditions that, you know that that in a sense will um uh instantiate this equality so that it's not just that i regard you as an equal but actually you are able to live and and be as an equal um and and there um you know yeah there it's it's it seems to me it's uh uh, it's a never-ending process that one is constantly moving towards this possibility, rather than um, hoping to arrive at it. But I think those are two, two, uh, two obviously related but uh, distinguishable questions about how we uh, how we realize equality in uh, social and economic uh, conditions. Is there's a whole set of questions there, but how we realize actually really, really being able to live this idea that we regard all others as equals. And I think it's not just a, a battle with, you know, political organisations that deny this or movements that refuse this. I think it's a battle that we, we each of us uh, have to engage with uh, pretty, pretty permanently ourselves. Um, you know, there are all kinds, as I say, there are all kinds of ways in which all of us have our little private conditions uh, that we we operate, um, which which we're we're always having to to address. So realizing (laughs) is is probably uh, setting rather a a high bar, um, but certainly um, ambition, an ambition rather than something one particularly expects to realize.
0: Thanks. So here's a question from Indra Manguli. You said we cannot base claims of equality on one specific human characteristic that we all share. What about other principles? For example, the civic republican idea that all humans should be free from arbitrary domination of others. Would that not serve as a decent basis for equality claims?
1: Uh yeah I think that I think you could formulate that in yeah. ways that made it quite similar to my idea of a commitment to equality right um so that it would be uh you know you could formulate something like that in a way which um clearly d- it wasn't wasn't grounded in um some kind of argument about what it is about human beings uh, that justifies why they should be treated as equals, um, but simply was 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 making a commitment to a particular way of living with, relating to, um, engaging with, uh, respecting others. Um, and you could have you could have a kind of version of a civic republicanism. Um, that that could be framed in a way that that could could be perfectly um, uh, you know perfectly compatible uh, with that um, you know depending on how you how you framed it but it does of course depend on how you frame it I mean one of one of the people whose whose ideas have uh, influenced me in in kind of developing my thinking about this is is uh, Hannah Arendt who um, who's also, I think, very, very critical of the idea of using notions of um, the human properties as a way of uh, of justifying uh, equality. And she uh, she very much has this idea of um, you know equality as something you know that within a community. And I think she's she's thinking in a kind of rather more um, uh, narrowly national context when she argues this than I'm thinking, but you know it's a similar idea that that you know we consti- in the community that we constitute we make a decision to re- to relate to others as our equals and we make them our equals in that moment and it's not because of anything about them <laughs> or any particular characteristics we've noticed about them um, that has led us to that it's a commitment that we that that we have made to them. Um, So that, you know, there there are some sort of similarities between and influences between that and and what I'm arguing.
0: Great. So here's a question from Joe uh, Waller, uh, a SOAS alumnus. Is it possible to have equality under capitalism when the system rests upon extraction from others and wants only counters wants if you can afford to pay?
1: Um, I'm inclined to say No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not uh, uh you know not um uh not ultimately i think i think capitalism uh, constantly uh, reproduces uh precisely the kinds of uh, um, both material inequalities and the kinds of gradations between people that make it very difficult to uh, achieve a fully egalitarian society but you know like many people, I've also um, come to uh, come to think that it's very difficult to think at the moment beyond the bounds of capitalism. So one also has to think of uh, what what's what's possible uh, within um, some form of sort of hopefully improved and uh, uh, modified system of capitalism. Um, and because uh, it's just very difficult for any of us to really think beyond the boundaries of capitalism, but but ultimately, I do think that there's there's an incompatibility between between capitalism and equality, and, and that's something that one just has to battle with.
0: Thanks. So here's a question from Vipendra, a PhD candidate at the Johol Nehru University in New Delhi. Professor Philip, thank you for your wonderful talk. Yeah, yeah. As you argue that equality as a claim or promise for ourselves, as you argued that equality as a claim or promise for ourselves, then you don't see a binary between the oppressor and the oppressed. I was wondering if you see substantial, unconditional equality beyond the oppression.
1: Okay, so I don't see a binary between the oppressor and the oppressed. So certainly, um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what I want to say to this. So I, I certainly, it's true. I don't. Uh, I mean, I don't want to. Um, uh, I don't want to say because people are uh, the ones with the power, the ones with the wealth, the ones who are the oppressors that therefore they. A forfeit uh, their right to be um, regarded as equals of, you know, in a sense, you know, equally, um, of, you know, equal significance and worth. You don't lose all of that because of the, um, because of what you do. Um, and that includes you don't lose all of that because you are an oppressor. But of course, um, of course, I I make a distinction between the, uh, the oppressors and the oppressed, um, you know, in the sense of uh, whose side are you on, in the sense of uh, who needs to lose power and who needs to gain power, um, in the sense of what kinds of, you know, social, economic and political changes need to take place and and how these will differentially uh, impact on different groups within society. So in that sense, I clearly do uh, make a distinction between the oppressor and the oppressed. but but I but yeah I mean as with any as with any language of human rights obviously that there's a way in which you're talking about something which which isn't supposed to be forfeited um, it, it is supposed to be unconditional um, and it's not supposed to um, disappear because you're on the wrong side of some particular divide I'm not I'm not entirely confident that I am. Uh, answering and addressing your question, and it is one of the one of the disadvantages of the webinar is that it's much it's much harder for uh, for you to kind of come back at me. But you know, I hope that that's uh, that's addressed at least some of what you're asking.
0: Okay, thank you. So Kelly Steele asks, there, writes there are considerable differences between how citizens are treated um, and those that are immigrants, whether legal or not. And the, the questioner says, "I use those terms as shorthand, not because I believe they're meaningful." Your thoughts on this, please, and thank you for a great presentation and great answers.
1: Okay, so, um, so obviously, my, um, I mean, clearly, I'm, I have a very uh, my the, the the major implication of what I've said tonight yeah. uh, is about the ways in which all of us, regardless of our Civic status, national um, status—you know whether whether we're certainly whether we're migrants, citizens, asylums, uh, 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 asylum seekers, refugees—that all of that is subsidiary to the sense in which, as as human beings, we all have the same equality claim. Right. However, that of itself doesn't translate um uh into very precise kind of positions about uh what particular rights people have um in terms of whether it's rights moving around the world or um rights of residence Um, and i'm um I mean I'm less I'm, I'm I'm my thinking on that is much less developed than my basic thinking on beyond all of those distinctions we are all humans right and we are all entitled to be treated as humans and as human equals but I just don't think that that of itself translates sufficiently precisely um into an answer to your question um you know when it comes to the different ways in which uh, citizens claim certain uh, greater rights than um, uh, non-citizen migrants, um, and so on. Um, so th- you'd, you'd need a much fuller, um, much fuller work on that than I have uh, than I have yet done in order to come up with a really good answer to that question.
0: Okay, well, we've got time for a couple more questions, I think. Um, There's a great mass of questions here, which is testimony to the richness and interest in the talk. I'm just going to put one question for myself and then we'll come to a a final question after that. I mean, the, the basic idea here seems to be that making equality conditional on shared human nature has offered alibis that have caused all sorts of problems that you've iterated. But, of course, it's the case that many ideas work in different directions at the same time. You've emphasised the alibis that it's offered, but hasn't it also offered levers and wouldn't discarding it remove levers, which have been rather unusual in the long sweep of human history, despite their ineffectiveness at various points in time?
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it clearly is the case that ideas... Uh, move in different. I mean, so even those really restrictive, unbelievably restrictive ideas of equality that people were kind of sharing, uh, you know, three, four hundred years ago, they helped inspire much uh, grander ambitions. Right. So ideas produce all kinds of uh, unexpected, unintended consequences. Um, and they travel in all kinds of ways uh, to different places and different possibilities. So of course, um, the fact that uh, there are hostage, <coughs> sorry, the fact that there are hostages to fortune in a particular idea doesn't mean that it, it, it can't, I mean, you know, and, and the history clearly is a history of that. The, the ideas that I, I might now have about equality, are products of a long history of 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 thinking about equality. I don't mean my history, I mean the history of the world <laughs> thinking about equality, um, elements of which are part of the bad story that I've been telling, and elements of which are part of the good story. So so that I I completely accept and 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 a fuller story um provides that. But I, I think you're also you're also kind of um you're also kind of saying something about, well, you know, if you're, isn't it a really useful device when you're up against people who refuse to accept particular groups of humans as, as their equals? Isn't it a really helpful device to be able to, to show the ways in which they are just like you, right? I mean, and that's been a very uh, that's been a very powerful argument over the over the centuries. However, it is also an argument that has always had its kind of complications. I mean, it's something that I mean, this is something that's been kind of much discussed within feminism as well as as well as elsewhere about the kind of the the dangers of the argument when women say, you know, we when women say we're as good as men. Um, and then other feminists say that's a very poor standard to be measuring yourself against um but it's there's there's a kind of there's a problem inherent in 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 that kind of argument but i think your general point about the way in which ideas always have at least at least a double meaning and a double set of possibilities and probably much more than that is absolutely true and and i you know i mean i think i haven't been able really to kind of capture the richness of that tonight or possibly in the book. But, um, you know, but I don't at all disagree with you on that one.
0: Thanks very much. Look, here's a question from Mary Jo McDonald, a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, who says, thank you so much for the talk. I was wondering if you could say more about your proposed solution. So maybe it's a good question on which to end. How does treating equality as conventional rather than based on some natural fact, get around the problem of exclusion. A rent's equality, for example, is conventional, but also exclusionary. It excludes non-citizens. So there's a specific point here about a rent and exclusion, but also a general general request for your solution, which might be pertinent at this point.
1: Yeah, so I think... um... I mean I'm obviously going to give a disappointing answer to that because it's uh, <laughs> the idea that any of us have uh, solutions is is probably a bit over optimistic. I, I think what I see myself as um what I see myself as challenging is 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 really the what I see as a complacency. And I think a complacency about people thinking that we're much uh, further along this road than we really are. And I think freeing ourselves from that complacency, recognising just how far we are from even basic equality, not to mention the kind of monumental tasks of uh, actually achieving some substantial social and economic equality, recognising that is a much better place to be than imagining that you've already sorted a particular set of problems. And as I, as I was saying in my comments about criticisms of identity politics, I think a lot of those criticisms stem from the mistaken belief that we're much further along that road than we really are, so we can concentrate on other things instead. So it's not a solution. It's, a kind of, it's almost just like a kind of clearing the ground type argument, which is saying it's much better... To be starting from uh, a recognition of of where we are, um, rather than a kind of um, a, a kind of you know progressivist optimism about where we've achieved through all these kind of centuries of egalitarian politics. Um, so I yeah I I'm, I wish I had. Uh, a better answer to your question about solutions. Um, and it's a bit mean of you, Robin, to expect there to be an answer to that in the final question of every Ralph Miliband lecture. But, uh, but really, that, that's, that's as far as I've got. Um, but, you know, these are continuing conversations, obviously.
0: Well, I think the, the range of questions has, has has really been phenomenal. Your ability to answer such a wide range is quite remarkable. I mean, what we've heard, I think, tonight is a really profound argument that's identified the importance of making equality conditional uh, on human shared characteristics in a wide range of different political philosophies. And Professor Phillips has made the point that that's offered a range of different alibis and identified a legacy that results from that, a legacy that can be seen in some left-wing arguments as well as the arguments of others. And we heard at the end that it should be therefore treated rather as a question of commitment and a claim, that ultimately it's a political and not a philosophical matter. So thank you very much. Um, and thank you, Professor Phillips, for this wonderful talk. Uh, it's a wonderful way to end the series of Miliband Lectures this year, and I hope um, we'll see many of you again in the coming year. Thank you very much.
1: Thank, thank you, Robin. And uh, thank you for your questions.